You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and to help me in assembling the Avengers is John Mills. And boy, howdy. Are we really just trucking along right here? Let's start building this Avengers timeline with gusto on tonight's episode. We are committed. This is the moment where we are. There's no looking back after this moment. It's true. It's true. In fact, I do feel like this is definitely a demarcation line uh, indelibly marked uh, on the Iron Man suit, which is that. We are going to start connecting the MCU together in a way that, well, we'll talk about it. So, um, but uh, before we get there, thanks, you know, so much for listening to Assembling Avengers here in the 602 Club feed. Hope you're enjoying it. And um, we're enjoying doing it, honestly. It's been a blast so far. Uh, you could find us wherever you get your podcasts and, uh, you know, give us a star rating and review, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts if you have an opportunity. It really helps people continue to find the show. And, and if you like it, help us grow. Uh, on We can find us, uh, of course, on Twitter at the 602 club uh, we're on instagram at the 602 club tfm you can find us on facebook for the whole network at facebook.com slash track fm the listeners only discussion group of course uh and uh track.fm where you can see all the shows the entire network is doing there's a contact section you can send us an email if you'd like so so many different ways uh, to to connect with us and uh, in all honesty john and i would love to be connecting with you about what you're thinking as hopefully you're watching the marvel movies with us uh, so, you know, so hit us up uh, on uh, Facebook or social media, um, and uh, we'll let you know where you can find us on social media as we kind of exit the show as well. But again, you use that hashtag assembling Avengers and because we'd love to see what you guys are thinking about these films. And so, John, as we do, uh, this is a, you know, this is our first sequel in the MCU. So mm-hmm. we're already following up a, a film with a sequel. And part of that was Iron Man was so successful. They were obviously going to be doing a second and they wanted to do it quickly because I think of, of how well it was received. And so you didn't see the first two MCU movies in the theater. So what was your first experience with Iron Man two? Funny story. I didn't see this until well after its theatrical run. I think I probably saw the rest of Phase 1 before I ever even worked my way around to Iron Man 2. I was working, because Iron Man 2 comes out in 2010, I was working uh, a soul-crushing job for one of the absolutely worst ball-busting bosses I've ever had in my life. Um, I still think of this person with fear. Not respect either, but fear, like it's nightmare fuel to remember ever having worked with this person. And so I was just not inclined to go to Iron Man 2 because between the commute, the soul crushing job, the family obligations, and then uh, looking at the, the larger picture, I had friends who saw Iron Man 2 and said, no, you don't really need to see this. 
And so they had waved me off. And so it wasn't until many years later that I saw this. And I'm pretty sure I saw it on Netflix. Um, so it would have been quite a while afterward. It couldn't have been Netflix. It, it was something, though. It was streaming when I finally watched it. Uh, you know, or maybe maybe it was on the Netflix disc queue or something like that. You know, that type of stuff right. really gets lost in the mists of time. Uh, from time to time. What about you? Did you see this in the theater? Yeah, I went. I was in the theater. Uh, you know, I remember being jazzed about it. Of course, the trailer looked great. You know, um, I, I think you know the trailer really came to life with that. You know, wonderful shot of him. You know, putting on the Iron Man. You know, briefcase suit, which is just such a really cool shot um, and just a great idea. Uh, and so I was definitely game to, to see this in the theaters. I did. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things too. I, I think maybe Iron Man 2, like many sequels is, is one of those things where it's like, be careful what you wish for. Um, because I, I do wonder, uh, as we kind of talk about this, was this necessary for the 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 character? I mean, let me ask you that question. I, I just because something I've been thinking of: is this actually necessary as a film for Phase One? Why couldn't we have just jumped to Thor instead of doing this? I don't have a good answer for that question. I really don't, and I think evidenced by the fact that I didn't even see this till Phase One was well well and truly over with, proves that it isn't really that necessary. This was a movie, the first time I encountered it, I'm going to tip my hand here that my opinion hasn't changed too much here, but it felt like what I will come to call occasionally throughout the course of the MCU, a bullet point movie, where this is just simply about delivering the bullet points. This is how Tony Stark eventually gets to the point of being in the Avengers. This is how we introduce Black Widow. This is how we are going to uh, set up War Machine. Okay, those are my three main bullet points right here. And then the Stinger is going to set up Thor. And that is it. There, the unfortunate thing is I think that there is a definite necessary emotional arc to, to Tony Stark within the context of Iron Man 2. The problem is it gets drowned out by a whole bunch of stuff that is unnecessary. Uh, and so I would actually say that this movie suffers very much from what, in all honesty, really uh, cripples Batman Returns, where there are vestiges of good ideas and interesting emotional arcs but there is so much crammed together that you look at it and you say, I, I don't really think this is two movies, but I don't really think this is a well-formed mm -hmm. one movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I think for me, my initial thoughts are, are similar in the sense that the movie really does feel like there's so much going on and they have set aside subtlety for 
obviousness, you know, when it comes to the way in which they are connecting with the rest of the MCU now and, and the fact that they're going to be connecting to an MCU. You know, I think the first two movies, you know, where we talked about uh, the way that Hulk does it and even Iron Man does it, everything is little bits and pieces in the background or just little mentions here and there of things, but it's never in your face and it's never so blatant. And obviously this movie gets really blatant when, you know, uh, you have Agent Coulson having to leave, you know, because he's got to go to New Mexico, which is like it's in your face. We're we're talking about Thor. We're talking about Thor. We're not saying the name Thor, but we're talking. Tell me you're talking about Thor without actually saying Thor. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing. Uh, you know, this the same thing happens for Fury. Uh, I mean, it, it, like everything in here, just it it feels like Captain Obvious, which is very strange when the first two movies were uh, again just much more subtle than that. And so, and I think originally, I felt like that the storyline for Tony felt very redundant from the first movie. Mm-hmm. And I will say that that's something that's been ameliorated after watching the movie a, a few times in the sense that I feel like he is going through a different struggle here. Um, and it's, it, it's not the, the same. This is actually just a, it's more a continuation of a lot of things from the first movie in the sense of, Obviously, Tony has daddy issues, you know, and um, all those kind of things. And and we're going to continue to actually explore that as we move through the MCU, even all the way to uh, Civil War. So this is not something that's going to go away uh, for this character. But here it really comes to light as this character struggles not only with daddy issues, but he's also struggling with his own mortality because he, he does think he is going to die within a matter of weeks, you know? And so um, I, I think those two struggles make this an interesting movie for Tony himself. Um, and I think you rightly pointed that it's those other things that just kind of get in the way of that, which should be what this movie is really about. I, I also think what's really strange about this movie is I very much get the sense, and I got the sense when I first watched it, the energy of this movie is markedly different from the original Iron Man. The original Iron Man, I can look at that, and while I wouldn't say that John Favreau is a, like a Hitchcock type of director, where I, that is a Hitchcock movie, you know, uh, that's a Kubrick movie, that's a Hitchcock movie, I don't sit down and go, that's a Favreau movie necessarily. Mm-hmm. But he's always been very good about being a disciplined storyteller. And what creeps into Iron Man 2 is the old superhero sequel movie-making philosophies. We need more. We need bigger. We need greater. We need as much as you can possibly cram in. And again, I make reference again back to Batman and Returns. Holy cow, that's the problem with, like, you look at it and you're like, oh, the Penguin thing works. That's pretty interesting. And the Catwoman thing is pretty interesting. And the Max Shrek thing, I guess, is pretty interesting as a foil to Bruce. But everything's just there. Like, and it's not necessarily story-serving story. And so I've always had the sense that this is the first obvious sense of uh, meddling with 
the formula from the people in power. And let me be very clear here. I know about the Marvel story group, but what happens, I think, once we get past this is we, they, I think they learn a lesson with this movie of instead of looking at the script and then coming top down, they instead have those points handed to the writers and the director and they say, this is what you need to work in. Now do some magic with it. So it's, it's a different point of attack. Instead of it being top down notes, okay, great script, but put this into it. Later on, there becomes much more feeling of, okay, here are the points, make a script out of it. And I mm -hmm. think that is probably, and also the rush to get it moving along probably resulted in a lot of notes back and forth where, you know, this is two years later. I mean, it's kind of insane that this movie mm -hmm. comes out that quickly. And probably the fact that it's not an absolute disaster is to Favreau's credit mm -hmm. because he's able sure. to make it at least a little bit engaging uh, at certain points. But I, I really can't get past some of the things. And I wanted to, uh, let me ask you about this. I, I really do think visually and editorially, it doesn't feel the same. It feels like we're, it doesn't feel like uh, uh, the same director behind the lens. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't feel like the same creative mind put these together. And I think that's probably the disconnect yeah. that I'm talking about. Yeah, I agree with that because uh, the feeling I come away with the movie is uh, even rewatching it, it feels manic. There, you know, the the first movie is so streamlined and it's so well crafted to give you the story of of what Tony Stark is going through and his change from being complete narcissist who could care about couldn't care about anybody else to being somebody who does care about other people right like and and it's a it's a work in progress but he's by the end of the movie he is he is a person who actually sees the world beyond himself you know and i think you know this movie it tries to have that focus specifically on tony again and to move him forward again but the problem is is that there's so much going on around him that Again, it just feels manic. We don't have a, a nice through line, and it doesn't feel like the other stories are connecting with that thematic element of Tony in the way that it's supposed to. They're trying. I mean, you know, with Venko, they're trying to kind of connect with father issues. They're trying to connect with Hammer, the idea of like somebody who's, you know, kind of jealous of Tony and basically because he could never be Tony, um, you know, I, but none of those storylines are really servicing the way that they should to uplift the main story. They feel like they're actually detracting and or taking away. And that's not even getting to the, the, the stuff where we're throwing at you the Avengers and the S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff and, you know, Black Widow. Right. I, I think that probably the first moment where I realized – in the first viewing and then even on this review where I realized there was just something not quite right was uh, his arrival at the Stark Expo and they have all of these quick, you know, mm -hmm. spinning camera movements and these pans and the dancing girls and the cutting and the, and it, and it jumps back and forth really super frenetically. And it, it just feels weird. 
And I think there, I would also ding for a little bit of a process error. And it's something I think that later gets resolved with uh, when no one approaches Dark Knight Rises is opening of Dark Knight Rises, you have an event and then you have basically six months later. Whereas with this, what we're watching before the title card is what's occurring, what feels like should be occurring over the six months. We feel like like it goes forward, it goes over this point, and then it says six months later. It's like, so was that what was happening for six months? Or did that happen before six more months went? Right? right. What, what, what's, our, what's our time frame here? And I think to what you're saying, I think that if this movie is disciplined enough to be Vanko and Hammer... Mm-hmm. Against Tony, you can have Pepper and, you know, a, a couple other things worked in. But I think trying to have fully developed other things happening is what kills it. And one of the things I'll ding it for is Rhodey. He's here because he, quote unquote, has to be here. But the whole thing with the the military and like you could tell that in a much more focused fashion in this basically arms race between Tony and Vanko. And you sort of realize that maybe the way you look at it is hammer is the stand in for the U S military. And so Tony realizes he does have to team up with the U S military in order to go up against this other super well-funded team sort of thing. And you, you could have that sort of interplay going against it there, or even find a way to work in, Black Widow, because she's from Russia, for Pete's sake. Work her into that sure. Vanko storyline instead, and then have her be a double agent who helps Tony in the end. I think mm-hmm. you've got a much more streamlined uh, sort yeah. of movie. And I, I wind up feeling yep. bad for, like, Sam Rockwell, because he's really trying yeah. to be in this movie. Oh, yeah. And I wind up feeling bad for Mickey Rourke. He's coming right off of his success with The Wrestler, and he's back. Yep, I remember. Mickey Rourke's yeah. back, baby. And he should be featured more in this movie, but... Yeah, he barely has anything to do, really, in this film. Yeah, he shows up, he whips a car, he breaks out of jail, and then he has a fight at the end. And it's like, mm-hmm. his arc doesn't really Go exist. anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I really like what you've said because I think it does change a lot of the issues that, that I have with the film and part of this had to be, you know, you needed to find a way to streamline, I think, specifically some of these stories because, you know, dealing with I, I get want the other part of this is that I get wanting to have you just come on the scene. You've privatized world peace. Thank you very much. And trying to deal with the reality of that. Right. Mm hmm. They won't be able to deal with reality in Marvel movies very well until Winter Soldier. And that's probably the only one that really deals with reality, quote unquote, of the situation uh, mm-hmm. and its effect on, quote unquote, the real world in a way that I think is helpful and and ben- and, and, and actually works. And part of that, I think, is because that Tony as a character doesn't lend it himself to talking about thematic elements that don't have to do with Tony. 
This isn't, he's not Captain America. And so that becomes an issue, I think, in this film is that they're not going to get to have a serious conversation about these things because Tony's just going to make everything a joke anyway. And so why are you trying to have a serious conversation about all this stuff when you're not actually going to ever be serious about it? Because, again, he's not Steve Rogers who's going to take this stuff seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think as much as I like the thought process behind the thematic elements that they're going for there, I think – you need to excise most of that so that you can just have it be focusing on Tony and his personal journey of mortality. I mean, you know, basically in many ways, they're kind of doing their own demon in a bottle story without it having be his his alcoholism, but it be more about his mortality that he's struggling with. And that leads him down to kind of a dark path here. Um, and I think then that allows you to then strengthen character development with the villains you need to combine them somehow or just have one or you know uh something just align there them, align them differently I- exactly and then yeah i mean i think you know um to talk about the replacement in the room you know don Cheadle comes in because of issues that they have with terrence howard and it does seem as though that the biggest reason for this is that John Favreau did not enjoy working with him and didn't really want to work with him again. Uh, and they were going to make the part smaller and offer him less money. And he said no. And so they went with Cheadle instead, which, you know, at this point, you just kind of wish they had gone with him in the first place to alleviate all of these issues. And because, you know, he's very good in the role i think he's he works well against robert downey jr but again it does kind of feel like there's just so much happening in the film and there's just so many focus points you get lost as to where to focus i i have to be completely honest that i think if you're going to replace Rhodey, who's a huge part of the first one it might have been smarter to have Rhodey be in a smaller role in this and have Don Cheadle come in near the end in a smaller Rhodey version just to sort of like break the ice sort of thing. Now, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I'm, no, I'm no movie producer, obviously, or, or director or anything. And this type of role replacement can happen. I... I love Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Dark Knight after seeing Katie Holmes in Batman Begins. I'm obviously, I'm fine with replacing an actor or actress. It's fine. It's no big deal. Like, it happens all the time. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's it's something about the way it's handled here. It's almost like maybe we should have just had Rhodey at the the briefing in the beginning and then maybe a small scene at the end. And that way it sort of warms the water up because there's just... There is a uh, a marked difference, I think, in the way that Cheadle approaches the role that I would say is really good and has a good chemistry with Robert Downey Jr., but it's enough of a departure. It's, it, it really is a reintroduction of Rhodey. And in a movie with this much going on, it doesn't get the the sort of attention and care that it deserves. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like, too, the whole addition of 
War Machine could have happened in another film. Mm -hmm. Even Avengers, maybe. Um, you know, again, kind of, kind of hint at it here, and then when they need him in Avengers, have him, you know, give him the suit and everything. I, I just, again, it's just an, another focus point that isn't necessarily serving what the main story is, which is Tony and his struggles with his his father issues and and with you know dying uh, this just doesn't really help that move forward at all have him have a falling out with Rhodey early in the film and then at the end of the film his gesture of goodwill to show that he realizes he was in the wrong is he gives Rhodey look this yeah, is an older suit go. I'll let you guys get up to speed with this you're not going to get you know I'm 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 not giving you what's what I have now. I'm giving you what was an earlier version and you guys can reverse engineer it. Sure. Keep yourselves busy for a couple of years. And that winds up ameliorating. I think that that storyline mm -hmm. there. And the thing is, I, what's interesting is usually I enter conversations like this, um, trying to temper my distaste for a film, uh, because I know that there are going to be people who do enjoy it, who people do love it. But and sure. I want to ask you this. Have you ever encountered anybody where they're particularly defensive of Iron Man 2? Because my general impression is that I'm not in the my I'm not in the uh, minority here with mm -hmm. all of the problems. And you're not in the minority either. That the majority of right. people who see Iron Man 2 or have seen Iron Man 2 say, yeah, you kind of just got to get past this one. Yeah. I mean, I don't really feel like I've run into anybody who's trying to really defend Iron Man 2 for the most part, which, you know, I, I get because it's not an easy, I, I don't think it's really an easy movie to defend. Um, and so and I, I think, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I, it, normally, I don't know if I'd be as difficult on a film as, as we're being here, but I, I think part of the reason that I am is because the first one was so well-crafted and really was in line. And obviously, you know, you can see, you know, we've seen other things that Favreau has done and, you know, you, you could look to the Mandalorian now and obviously he's working with Dave Filoni, so he's not solely responsible for that, but he has a huge part in that. And so, and, He's kind of his own boss, you know, like it's him and Filoni together and Kathy seems to pretty much like whatever they do. So um, it doesn't seem to have a lot of people telling him no here, whereas I do. It does really feel in many ways like he had some other people trying to insert a lot of stuff into this film. And I think it's we might as well just talk about inserting Black Widow into this film, which she's never called that. We just learned her name is Natasha Romanoff. Um, but she is an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. working with Fury. And does that work for you at all, or is that just another thing that they maybe should have tried somewhere else? Again, I, I think it would have been better to work her in with, uh, with you know, with Vanko and have her be a, a double agent sort of thing. And, it, like, that's the big reveal at the end. Where it's like, oh no, I, I'm a shield plant, ha ha, mm -hmm. I win. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm the one that takes off hammer to be arrested because I think that storyline in particular suffers from the fact that there is, let's call it, uh, I guess, the Count Dooku effect. Attack of the Clones is constructed 
perfectly well for the big reveal being that Count Dooku is the bad guy. But not a single person walked into that movie thinking the bad guy's not going to be Count Dooku. Oh, Christopher Lee's in your movie. Okay. Everybody sat down in this movie and said, oh, well, that's Black Widow. And so it's it's not a build of suspense at all. It's just there. And you're like, okay, when are you going to get to the point? And then when they have the reveal of the donut shop is really weird and underwhelming. It's one of those things we know she's Black Widow. We know they're going to reveal her as Black Widow. And it's not a cool reveal. It's not mm-hmm. she suddenly jumps in and saves Pepper's life. It's not she does some big thing. It's just, hi, I'm at a donut shop. Okay. Okay, you know, like that, that's just one of those things where it's just a, it's a gimmicky thing that just doesn't work. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you on that. And I, I think it's, uh, the frustrating thing is, is that, and it's weird to me that I don't feel like the MCU treats this character very well for most of her existence, mainly because she gets sidelined into a movie that's not about her, and she's always that way. And I just, it, it's strange to me that, I mean, just to put, uh, look at the other side of the coin, look what happens with, you know, uh, Wonder Woman. You know, she's introduced in another movie, but immediately the next movie is about her, you know, all about her. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's more of like, hey, we're going to tease this for you, and then we're going to give you the real thing. And like, you know, Black Widow won't get her movie until, it, well, it came out as we're recording this year. And so, I mean, it just, there's such a disconnect, I feel like, with the character in a, the first place. And, it, and honestly, I find it really sad that she never gets the opportunity to shine without it being to really prop somebody else up. Do you think, let me ask two parts here. One, do you think she should have made her debut in an alternate movie than Iron Man 2, which already had so much going on? Or two, do you think that Black Widow deserved and should have gotten her own standalone movie at this point? Do you think that they should have been willing to take that risk and have the first female-led, big big mm-hmm. name female. I mean, Tank Girl exists. Yes, I know. I saw it in the movie theater. It stunk. But the first major female-led superhero movie could have happened now in phase one. And I'm not saying... I'm not second-guessing. I, I know why they did Thor. Thor's got name recognition. I know why they did Captain America. Everybody loves Captain America. I know why they did Iron Man. Like, it almost feels like Iron Man 2 takes the place of where a Black Widow should have happened, or even a Black Widow and Hawkeye, or a Hawkeye. You know, like it feels like this movie happening here is a rush job mm-hmm. that takes the place of something else that should have happened. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I, I do. The funny thing is, is that I think that you actually had come up with a good idea in introducing her in the film, which was having her be uh, an an actual agent uh, that is, you know, turns out to be a double agent. 
I think that would have been really interesting. And that's a much better way, I think, to introduce her. And then I think that leads in well to what we see her doing in Avengers and the way she's utilized there. And so, um, yeah, I just I think it is it is interesting because she just comes in as another layer and it is disappointing that, you know, she is going to be a major player in the Avengers all the way through Endgame. And yet she's always just there to help somebody else's storyline other than her own, really. Mm. And it's it's very it's very odd to me that that would be the case. Yeah, I mean, look, dollars and cents wise, I I do understand why producers look at it and they don't push for a Black Widow movie just from sure. a dollars and cents sort of thing. And I know that nobody wants to look at it that way. But especially as the MCU is establishing itself, I understand the business decision of only going with the people you know are going to sell the product because right. you're trying to establish the brand at this point. Mm-hmm. I think it's highly unlikely we're getting a Black Widow thing in, the, in, the, in, in phase one, but there could have been one in phase two. Once they're established... It could have happened oh, then, sure. absolutely, yeah. as a standalone movie. Yep. Um, because by that point, you've established the brand, and people are going to go to the movie regardless of its purported quality from even mm-hmm. word of mouth. Uh, right. You know, as as I think the box office of Iron Man Two proves. I know I was not alone in people saying, "Eh, it's not that good," but it still made gobs of cash. So they they learned that they've got the momentum behind them now because they've had three. Yes, Incredible Hulk was a hit. They've had three hit movies in a row. The train is gaining speed at this point. I want to ask you then as we're discussing this, we've been talking about it, and I'm, I'm interested to see, has anything changed at all for you over the years as you've watched the film, has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Is it pretty much just say the same? I, w- I would say that my reaction was less severe in terms of my dislike for the movie. Oh, I'm tipping my, ha- my hand again. Sorry about that. Um, like the second time you watch a movie you don't particularly care for, it's mm-hmm. not the same type of visceral reaction. You know the, the sort of disappointing beats that are going to happen where you're like, eh, okay, that's going to happen. I would say probably this time my opinion has lessened specifically because, and this is going to be the the part where you're going to want to do a victory lap and other people are going to want to chew my ears off. But the ending with all of the Stark World's Fair, whatever they want to call it, being blown up and the civilians everywhere and all of that stuff the only thing I can think while I'm watching it is the key difference here between how people perceive Zack Snyder with Man of Steel and this movie is the fact that they show Iron Man specifically save a kid in in one scene. But I'm sitting here watching it saying, 
all that glass falling from that dome, there should be a lot of dead people. But you're treating it as if it's just a minor nuisance that's freaking people out. And all of these explosions going off aren't sending debris anywhere. And all, and Mm -hmm. like as a result, you know, and, and the car crash at the, at the Grand Prix. Oh, sure. Right. Like, okay. First and foremost, yeah. Tony should be dead, but yeah, there's, there's absolutely no, those tires are going into the crowds and they should be killing people. Like, And I think that what it is, is it's so weird because this is one of those ones where Marvel, this early in, it's the third movie, this early in, Marvel gets a free pass. Mm-hmm. And it's baffling to me because now I look at this movie and having gone on the journey on Snyder Cuts, I look at it and say, well, what's the key difference in the, the demolition here? Like they're causing just as much destruction as like the destruction of metropolis like like this sure. doesn't what what like what's the disconnect why does marvel get a pass for this like they're this is this is destruction on a grand scale so that that actually winds up working against it for me this time just because mm-hmm. my perception has shifted uh a little bit now of course you know people could defend it and say well you know people don't like iron man 2 as much and maybe that's one of the reasons but i don't know nobody complains about that part of iron man 2 it's weird. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, uh, you know, I think you're right in that sense. Like, I don't think that that's what people are complaining about in any way, shape or form with Iron Man 2. Um, and it is interesting, though. I, I would, I, I guess what the way I would put it with that um, in that thought process is how Marvel is already, I would call it Marvel's pulling punches already. And sanitizing, but that's just me. You know, they're they're sanitizing the violence, and they're not alluding to it in any way, shape, and form. The amount of of damage that they're causing, you know, um, and actually, they probably they really won't do that. I don't think until you get to um, Winter Soldier, where they destroy a building in a major city, and they'll allude to it in Avengers. But we'll get there. Um, you know, I think like yourself, the movie sat better with me this time. And part of that was just that I I think I made peace with the fact that this that this isn't just a repeat of Tony's issues in the first movie. They have found a, a way to continue what's happening with the character uh, and move it forward and make it different um to to make his struggle different and you know i the the and and the thing that i really liked the most about it was his dad makes that statement in the video where he says you know technology can solve all of our problems and tony is at a place for most of this movie where talk Technology is at literally killing him while keeping him alive at the same time, and there's nothing he can do about it because there's no technological advancement that's going to keep him alive. And I think that's really interesting. I wish they had dove into that much more, and they just don't, unfortunately. And and um, that's one of the detriments of the film of not really focusing on those themes enough. But I think it's really strong. Uh, so I like that a lot, and then. I did notice that, you know, Tony literally says, oh, that was easy. 
And it is kind of like they hit the easy button. It is a little bit too easy that Tony is able to save himself. But I also enjoy the fact that it's a father-son relationship and the father leaves his son the very thing that can save him. You know, I, I think there's there's a beauty in that. Um, and so I like all of that. And so I did, like you, my response to the film wasn't as, I guess, visceral as it has been in the past, which was unexpected, I think, that I would like the movie more than I thought I was going to. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's just the fact that it's been, it's time. Like time has 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 legitimately made things better for the film, or if you know maybe I was too harsh on the film before, I don't know, but it it is better than I remember now I'm gonna spoil this for you though, where I'm definitely not in the better than I remember camp. it's just it's less painful to watch it camp sure. if that makes sense yeah. um no i think I think so I, but I, you know i i I completely understand I don't think um. I can't fault you for that, you know, in any way. So, um, so this is going to be an interesting question too, because obviously we enjoy talking about the the music for the films, and you know, here we have um, a different composer, uh, John Debney, uh, comes in to fill the role. And what do you think? Uh, you know, um, you know, we we weren't blown out of the water with uh, the first film. How does this work for you with the second film? Or and, and let me, do you even hear the soundtrack or are you just thinking of all the pop music that they're using? <laughs> uh, I, I think the soundtrack's fine. It serves its purpose. Um, I, I think that, Debney is actually a very good composer. I, I think he's done a lot of actual good work out there. Um, and I don't think that this is bad work. I think that this is work. You know, uh, Debney worked on, uh, I mean, I think there's a, it's, there's a tremendous score for the Passion of the Christ. Um, I think that he's done uh, some you know, some other really solid work out there. Um, he worked on greatest showman, I think. Uh, and so he's a, he's a good composer. I just, it feels like this is more of like a workman's sort of score. It needed certain cues and he delivers them, but there's nothing about it where I'm like, Oh, I'm putting on the Iron Man two soundtrack. You know, I'm not listening to this score. So, yeah, no, I, I, man, I couldn't agree more with you. I think you know the 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 thing that most people I think remember about this film is that the soundtrack for it was an entire album of ACDC mm -hmm. songs, like that they they you know compiled and and put together. And I think in many ways. ACDC is actually the theme that people think of the most when they think of, mm -hmm. you know, this character. And and I, I think there's nothing wrong with that, I, you know. Um, and in many ways, I and I think it's funny that, you know, 
this is a place where uh, a superhero is more defined by the popular music that they listen to and that it is identified with them than an actual theme. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I feel like for if you're going to do that with a superhero, Tony Stark is really the perfect one to do it with. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's hip enough to be the guy who wouldn't really be into classical music anyway, you know, and or, you know, that type of stuff. That just wouldn't be his bag, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, this this fits perfectly. So, And you know what's funny is looking at uh, his filmography, uh, I've never seen this, but it's he worked on another Favreau movie back in 2005, uh, Zathura. Yep, he, yep, he, oh yeah. He worked on that film, and mm-hmm. so maybe that's where he... He winds up making, and there's another Mickey Rourke movie that he worked on, uh, Sin City. So, yeah, yeah. haven't you know, seen that. Yeah, go f- go figure. He's uh, he's been in there, and so yeah, I mean that's just more of an example of the fact that he does good work. It's just that this is mm-hmm. this is not a score that, to your point, demands too much of a composer. It's just right. you just need the right cues at the right moments, sort of thing. And I do think you know. We're three films in, and honestly, that's already kind of an issue for me personally with the MCU itself. The fact that we're, 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 I, maybe, maybe, you know, John Williams, you know, and, and the work that Danny Elfman did, you know, and, and those type of composers just ruined it for me forever in the sense that when I think of a superhero film, I think that it should have a score that I enjoy and that helps the film. Um, I don't know. It, let me, since we talk about the music so much, let me ask you that question. Does it matter? Does does a does you know? Am am I being? Is that just my expectation, and I should just let it go? Uh, you know, I think that letting it go could probably be good. Like I, to your point, I think you hit on it. The soundtrack release for this is nothing but ACDC music. That's just what you expect. And so the score takes a backseat. And I think that that's probably, I guess the, the signature that they're going for, for Iron Man, at least at first. And I will say that Debney's work and even Sylvester's work on the first one they work. They're they're there. They they work. It's not like it's not like what happens with Schumacher's Batman movies. Sure, where the score oh, yeah. is distractingly off putting, which is not you know. Again, always the qualifier. Elliot Goldenthal, long career, good composer, all of that stuff just didn't work for the Batman movies. What he did, um, but. Although I personally like his work on uh, Batman Forever, but that's just me. No, you don't. No, I do. No, I you actually don't. do. You don't actually. No, I hundred no. percent. I do. I looked it up online, and in fact, you do not. I will make sure that that is entered onto a Wikipedia. I will go onto the Wikipedia page for <laughs> Batman Forever, and I will say, as a side note, Matt <laughs> Rushing zero two. That's on Twitter, weird because I've I've got the soundtrack and I listen to it. Wait, so. the sa- now hold on a second. The soundtrack for Batman Forever is like the soundtrack for Iron Man Two, where it's no, all no, no. I, I mean the score is oh, what I score. when I say soundtrack, I always mean the score. I'm not referring to 
the you know but the soundtrack is also good anyway so yeah anyway 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 we don't have a hole on that we do we we have a habit to do that uh you know it's um is it is it fair of me to say let it go i mean you might as well ask me to let it go that roadie is a full foot taller in the suit uh than he is in person (laughs) and it makes no damn sense whatsoever and that is a sign to me of how disconnected I am from the movie by the fact that when I watched it this time, I said, wait, he was he was like a good 12 inches taller than that guy in the previous scene when he was in the suit. How is he shorter than that guy now? Mm-hmm. He's shorter by like a half inch. How does that work? The, 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 the feet don't have, you know, like it's one of those things where you've know. got lifts. That's fine. Okay, look, I'd buy it if he was like four inches tall or maybe even six, <laughs> but like he's towering over people. Yeah. It doesn't make any yeah. sense, Matt. Please, come on. I'm not insane. No, in this I, I'm right there with you. It is okay. weird. Thank you. Thank you. At least I know I'm not nuts um, about this. I yeah, don't think those things I, are I said about exclusive. This. I said about this. Okay, I covered myself <laughs> on that one. Come on. But I do, I do want to ask in terms of production design. Do you think that this is good production design? Do you think it carries through the production design aesthetic of the first one? Or does this feel disconnected in that visual sense? This still feels very grounded for the most part. And I think the only place it doesn't is the moment that they do the briefcase suit, which is going to be... That is the... We call this a demarcation line for the MCU, but this is the moment for, I think, with the the rest of the Iron Mans that we're going to get, and I maybe Iron Man 3 isn't as bad, but it's going to start to feel more spacey, computer-generated thing than it is going to feel grounded in reality, the Iron Man suit specifically. And obviously, you know, when we get to endgame and it's the nano suit and it does all these you know ridiculous things that you know we'll talk about when we get there in 20 years but um (laughs) it's yeah i i think this movie does still feel grounded you know you have a lot of very physical things you're dealing with even like the drones that they use in the in the scenes even when they're computer animated feel pretty realistic I you know I think that I love the work for the Stark Fair, which is very much like the World's Fair in New York kind of set up, which is great. I think that looks really good. You know, um, Tony's house still looks great. You know, as, as aesthetically, and I think the thing that feels that feels disconnected here is actually. The and the most is not production wise. It is the story with Pepper, whereas she was so integral to the first movie, and their relationship is so on cue. What I find most distracting here is how little Pepper really has to do in this movie, and that's disappointing, especially since it felt like they were basically going to be together uh, in in this next movie, and and then they're really kind of not, and it just it. It's like, what is going on here? It's almost like she's an afterthought because there's too much else going on. Yeah, I think that there is a, uh, uh, I I think that's probably the one where there's the biggest sort of weird reset with Pepper. 
you alluded to the fact that Tony sort of goes on a similar journey, but I really think it's the 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 relationship with Pepper that seems to go on the reset journey where they just don't know what arc to put her on. So they have to put her Mm -hmm. back on that arc of she and Tony have to resolve their issues again. And Mm -hmm. I think that is what speaks to what you're talking about, where it suddenly feels like Pepper isn't as integral to the story as she should be. And, you know, that, I, I mean, that's a, um, I think that's a very valid criticism. It's it's interesting because the script doesn't seem to know what to do with the female characters. And uh, I think yeah, they both get short absolutely. Yep. So and, and so the thing is, while ultimately I'll hold the director responsible for it, so Favreau shares his fair amount of blame with that, at the same time, the fact that, again, this gets released two years after Iron Man, and this is a huge scale production... And it gets out the door on time and on budget, so far as I know. I will go ahead and give also a heaping help of blame to Justin Thoreau's script. Because the script is the the wellspring of everything. Yep. And yep. if Favreau's simply been given the directive, get this thing out the door in 24 months, he doesn't have time to sort of nitpick over the script the way mm-hmm. I think he probably would. You look at his other works. You look at Iron Man. You look at his work on The Mandalorian. You look at... Uh, you know, any of the other things that he's received praise for. And he's very much a director that gets involved in that story element mm-hmm. stage and says, well, you know, maybe we need to do this instead. And I don't see him doing that. I see him more as just the manager here. And so I, I will, I will keep some blame on, on throw for that, that, that the the female characters are the ones that for whatever reason, seem the least actualized of Mm -hmm. all the characters on screen. Well, and I, what's interesting is that that was not a problem in the first movie, especially with Pepper's character. She was very integral to the story and felt very legitimate as a character. And then here she just doesn't. So um, I guess, you know, there's probably other things that we could talk about, but it really does lead me to the question then, for your rating now for Iron Man 2, where doth thou fall? For the last MCU movie that will have a number in its title, I will give it the same number of stars. Ooh. Two. Mm. It's harsh. It's harsh, bro. You want to know something? I don't think it's as harsh as my first review of it years ago. <laughs> um wherein I just I, I don't know if I was able to connect more or I, I if it's just like like I was talking about where it's like it's just less painful this time. Mm-hmm. I think there sure. are just so many problems with this that they are lucky that they moved so quickly into Thor after this. Because you roll this back, they're lucky because the momentum carries them past this. Sure, sure. I'm not heaping praise on Thor per se. I'm I'm looking forward to revisiting that. But they have momentum from this point forward. You know the next one is coming. So even if you don't care for this, you know it's like an episode of television. I didn't like episode five. Yeah, episode six is coming out. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. 
Uh, so I, I, I do think the momentum helps this because you roll this back to the 90s and to, to make the, you know, the, the comparison one last time, this is a Batman Returns sort of thing. It's a financial success, but it's not well received. And they would have tinkered and, uh, you know, and they do that with Iron Man. They tinker, they remove the director, and they take a different approach with the third one. So be interesting to get to that one. Where did you end up with this? Yeah, um, so I had been at a two and a half, and I gave this a three. Mm. And part of that was because I ended up at a different place with the character story for Tony, which is really the most important part of this story, and I liked it more. And that is offset by all of the issues that we talked about, though, you know. And and so I thought to myself, like, this is probably like a 2.75, but I'll give it a 3. I'll be a little bit generous. And part of that actually came from when I was looking at my list for, you know, my rankings of the MCU in general that I have on Letterboxd. And I was like, no, this does not deserve the place that it was because there are things that I would watch this over in the MCU, right? You know, like, so that really actually became my thought process as to why I would give it that basically extra half star because, yeah, I'd watch this over some of the other things uh, that that are lower on the list on my MCU list, which I would I mean, I'll only watch again for this show and then I will never probably watch again, you know, like that's that's where we end up. So this is this is a thing where it's like I could stand to watch this again. I probably won't for like another 10 years, you know, unless and and at that point, I'll probably just be rewatching through MCU movies at that point. But, <laughs> you, you know, like it's it's well, not a movie that I'm going to pull out and be like, hey, babe, you want to watch Iron Man 2? No, that's not going to happen. So we will revisit this when we have the uh, the sequel series to Assembling Avengers, uh, but it will be Assembling West Coast Avengers, and it will be at the end of Phase Six. Yeah, of, exactly. Of the Marvel. So, movies. Um, well, we only have three movies here. I think it's probably easy for you to put these in a ranking um, that's very consistent with where you already are uh so far so yeah where what do you rank the mcu right now iron man incredible hulk iron man 2 yeah same same thing you know um i'm probably a little bit closer in my you know ranking in the sense of like iron man and incredible hulk are probably closer than they are for you um but it's still iron man incredible hulk iron man 2 i mean it's there's it's probably the easiest ranking that we'll ever have to do on this show honestly it's it's very clear where we are i can't wait to see what happens with thor next week i i legitimately it's can't gonna wait. be fascinating it's gonna be fat i'm not gonna give anything away about how i feel because again i haven't rewatched thor and i'll i'll just preface it by saying i have not rewatched the original thor movie in probably a good 15 years I have so, not watched the original Thor movie since probably its first home release. And so I will be very interested to come back to it because this is the first time I'm revisiting Iron Man 2 in nice. nigh on how many years. So, yeah, it's going to be real interesting. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. Here. 
Well, uh, you know, John, if if uh, people want to catch up with you and, you know, talk about what we've been talking about here on Assembling Avengers or anything else, you know, where can they find you? You can find me online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, find me on your social network of choice uh, or your least favorite social network, whichever one. That's where I'll be. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting two shows. One show is called House Lights. Uh, where we break that up into series about directors and their works. Sometimes we split it up by decades. Sometimes we we actually look at the entire body of work. And sometimes, uh, like we did with Spielberg, we look at one movie from every decade. That's not your typical choice. So uh, that's a lot of fun. But even more fun, in all honesty, is a show that I do with you, Matt, called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I like to think is one of the more unique entries out there. So I encourage everybody to listen to it. And aside from the absolutely, what I feel to be magnificent run so far of assembling Avengers, where can people find you? Well, uh, they can also find me uh, doing the main show here, the 602 club, uh, as we're talking about all the fandoms we love, of course, you know, uh, John, you were just on as we did the 350th episode of that show. Uh, talking about Logan's run. We have some great stuff coming up as we've got some great movies coming out for the fall. Uh, like um, at this point, we'll have had no time to die. Dune is coming out. We've got some other great films that I can't wait to see. So all of that. Uh, we've also got um, Snyder Cuts. We talked about that. You know, uh, find Snyder Cuts here in the feed. There, It's the other bonus show that we did as we talked about all the films that Zack Snyder directed. Of course, you could find me on social media under the name MattRushing02. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the MCU and the films we've covered so far here in Assembling Avengers. And other than doing those shows, I've also got Literary Treks, The Orb, and Warp 5 that I'm doing here in the network. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Warp 5, we are walking through every single episode of Star Trek Enterprise in celebration of its 20th anniversary. So that's really fun already. And, of course, you could find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I did another show, aside from Aggressive Negotiations. It's actually finished now, but it's called... I'll post. I did that with Drea Kaufman, and it's a Harry Potter show where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But beyond all of that, thank y'all so much for listening. Avengers! Avengers!